0: Chapter 7, The SMA Gang. In February 2013, in Long Island, New York, Diane Larson and her husband Matthew had their first child, a girl, and they named her Emma. It had been an uneventful, healthy pregnancy, and for months, everything was fine. Emma was crawling by her first birthday, and at her one-year checkup with her pediatrician, nothing seemed abnormal. But then things changed.
1: And literally at 13 months... It was like her legs just stopped moving. It was, it was strange. So, her, it, the bouncy, the exosaucer they call it, yeah. uh, she wasn't bouncing anymore. She would just put her in and she just wouldn't move. So, like, okay, something's not right here. So, we took her back to the doctor and they are like, oh, well, it might be just like lazy, you know, take her to, um, without, like, early intervention, uh, go through them, talk to them, maybe there's some uh, physical therapy. We did that. So she was getting physical therapy at the time, but we still decided to uh, go through other doctors and see what was going on. We went to Stony Brook, and Stony Brook did uh, MRI on her. Um, and a couple other tests and said, no, she's, you know, she's fine. She was still crawling at the time. So they're like, just give it a few more months. And, so eh. this
0: physical therapy wasn't really helping?
1: Well... The, the thing was, it's amazing because her physical therapist is the one that pushed me to say, hey, something's not right here. Uh, she, she's a great therapist, and she said, listen, she goes, I'm not supposed to give advice, um, but if this was my kid, you know, don't listen to Stony Brook. You need to, like, do something, and you need to do it quick. Uh, she's getting weaker.
0: If she was getting weaker, it was happening so slowly that it was hard to tell. So Diane pulled up videos of Emma taking during the previous months, and began to go through them. Those videos over time, when viewed side by side, showed a clear regression.
1: And I pulled my husband aside. I was just in tears because I guess I didn't realize it. Uh, The thing with SMA, it takes just a little each day that you don't really notice it. It took so little. And then one day it was like, bam, what happened here? Yeah. Something's not right. Yeah. So when we looked back on the videos, I pulled my husband in and I said, because he, he was still like on the fence of, you know, maybe, you know, she'll be okay. And I said, this, I showed him the videos of her crawling at 11 months, now at 14 months. And he was like, wow.
0: Her physical therapist recommended a doctor at nearby St. Charles Hospital. But when Diane called, she was told the to wait for a new appointment was five months. By now, Diane was hysterical, she told me. Emma's crawling had become even more labored. The distance she could cover had shrunk down to four or five feet. When her daughter lifted her bottle to her mouth, her core was so weak she'd topple over. We don't have five months, she told the receptionist. The hospital fit Emma in on the coming Friday. The doctor spent four hours with her, and she was seen by a visiting neurologist who happened to be in the building that day. They drew blood. Until the Larsons, they'd have results in two weeks. Diane spent that time online, Googling neurological conditions, everything she found adding to her spiraling anxiety. And then they got a call asking them to come back to St. Charles.
1: You know, they, they sat us down. They said, um, you know, we have really bad news that your daughter has spinal muscular atrophy. We think she has type 2. Um, we don't know her lifespan, maybe 20 years. Uh, She'll never walk. She'll probably lose her upper body strength. Um, if there's no intervention, they she, she'll basically get to a point where they said she wouldn't be able to lift a cup or a fork. And, and the craziest things and thoughts go through your head. So I'm, I'm like, I have to sit here and watch my daughter slowly waste away. Yeah. Like that's what that's what I'm gonna do. Like it's still hard to talk about it. It's okay. Um, I don't, it's, it's literally hell on earth. I I don't think there's anything, I mean, it's, it's almost as bad as you could possibly, you know, things could possibly get.
0: So it's, it's almost like, um, if, if you, if the diagnosis was for yourself, you'd find a way to handle it. But when it's for your your kid, you really can't handle it. Yeah.
1: No, you always, you always, as a parent would wish it would be you rather than your kid.
0: That diagnosis came on July 22nd, 2014. The Larson's still call it D-Day. They were told there weren't any medications and there was no cure. They had no hope leaving the doctor's office, Diane said. In the following weeks, Diane called them a blur. She stopped eating and couldn't sleep. She lost weight. She slipped down into a kind of hole, grieving and feeling lost and desperate.
1: There's a lot of things that you, that you learn when, you, when you're you're hit with something like this, of how I could now relate to how people do crazy things because it it, it is, until you're put in that predicament, um, like you really would go at the end of the earth for for your child, Um, so you just become crazy. You, You look on the internet for anything.
0: It was difficult to snap out of that depression, but she did it. I can't stay like this forever, she thought. She needed to move forward in whatever way she could. The first part was sharing this terrible news with loved ones. But rather than retelling it painfully over and over, she put together a Facebook post and shared it with her circle. And then she and Matthew started thinking about where they could go and what they could do that would be best for Emma. From Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett, and this is Hope Lies in Dreams. The Central Nervous System Program at ISIS didn't start with SMA. Frank Bennett, as chief scientific officer, had the job of figuring out where and how to apply antisense technology. Though ISIS was strapped for money, it still allowed for what's called blue-sky research. That's work driven by curiosity, where the main goal is to simply consider what's possible. This was part of the culture Stan Crook had wanted and instilled at ISIS, and it was one of the reasons scientists like Frank stayed around all those years the chance to explore. What Frank wanted to explore was the central nervous system. In his blue sky research, he was collaborating with Don Cleveland from the University of California, San Diego, and Richard Smith, who is now director at the Center for Neurological Study in La Jolla, California. Those two men thought the way to deliver drug for CNS diseases might be via lumbar puncture. This technique is also called an intrathecal injection, and it administers drug into the cerebral spinal fluid at the base of the spine. The fluid then carries the drug along the spinal cord and into the brain. This method had been used by others in the field, and Frank and his collaborators set up some animal experiments to try it themselves. Here's Frank.
2: The original experiment was, um, you know, let's see what happens. uh, I I, I, I didn't have a preconceived idea that it would work or wouldn't work. Uh, It was just, you know, until you do the experiment, you, you don't know the answer. You know, once we started seeing some encouraging data from the uh, animal experiments that we were doing, then it became clear that this could be, you know, broadly applicable for a variety of CNS diseases. And and so we we focused on one disease to really establish all the proof of concept. What what was the first disease? It was uh, ALS uh, 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 due to mutations in a protein called uh, superoxide dismutase.
0: The superoxide dismutase gene, also called SOD1, had already been directly linked to a rare, aggressive form of ALS. So that helped de-risk the program and made it a good place to start. Quickly, in these mice experiments, the team saw evidence that antisense drugs have a longer half-life in the central nervous system than they do in organs, such as the liver. This was encouraging, but expanding the work and exploring other diseases would require a proper budget. And when Frank asked Stan about using in-house funds, the answer was no.
3: Uh, I was... Very skeptical. I didn't believe that the technology would work because of inflammation in the central nervous system. And I believed that if it did, there was no market.
0: It was 100% wrong. Stan told Frank he would need to find external resources. Frank did. He received grants from the ALS Association and the Muscular Dystrophy Association, both of whom provided critical funding, he told me. Without that money, it's likely the CNS program never goes anywhere. Generally, intrathecal injections were administered by a pump implanted under the skin, giving a constant slow infusion. But for the SOD1 mice and rat studies, the group delivered the antisense oligonucleotide via mini-pump into cerebral ventricles instead, right into the brain. The next step was to compare those results against intrathecal injection. In monkeys, Intrathecal delivery gave comparable results to what was seen with delivery to the brain, with less toxicity issues. From that point on, Frank and his team focused on lumbar puncture, though they eventually switched away from pumps to a bolus injection, which proved more efficient. These early experiments worked far better than I expected them to, Frank Bennett told me. They established proof of concept for the delivery method and documented that the drug was widely distributed into the spinal cord and brain tissue. They were getting someplace. Then Adrian Craner's lab published a paper on SMA and splicing.
4: And so we began to do some early antisense experiments. We based that, those initial experiments on the, what we knew about the protein that's failing to bind. And so that, that protein has a modular um, structure. And so we, we were trying to create a synthetic molecule that, that will function like that, like that RNA binding protein. So it had an antisense part and a peptide part attached to it. And, and so those are experiments that we did in the test tube, which worked quite well. And, uh, and so we, we published them. Uh, and, and so we also had a patent on this concept. And then that actually opened a lot of doors.
0: Frank saw the paper and the patent and reached out to Adrian in 2004. Here's Frank.
2: We set up uh Uh, a a call and invited him out to, uh, you know, visit the company. And, uh, you know, in his visit, we sort of mapped out a a plan of how we would go forward uh, that sort of started the collaboration.
0: The 2003 paper by Adrian in his lab attempted to deal with a single nucleotide substitution in exon 7 of the backup SMN2 gene. That substitution weakened the binding of splicing activators and caused only a small portion of SMN protein to be produced not enough to make up for the lack of SMN protein caused by the deleted or mutated SMN1 gene in spinal muscular atrophy sufferers. Adrian and his group engineered an antisense oligonucleotide and covalently linked a peptide that mimicked a splicing activator. This promoted exon 7 inclusion, and that was the basis for his paper. But when the two groups began working together and tried to produce the peptic nucleic acid meant to be linked to the antisense molecule, Isis found them hard to synthesize. And anyway, they didn't work as well as they'd hoped. Frank suggested they use the MOE second-generation chemistry that ISIS had built, and ISIS sent over about 100 antisense oligonucleotides for screening, Adrian said. Immediately, they got good results, and it was clear the peptide was not necessary. The group began working in that direction. But by now, ISIS had had the massive Affinitech failure and the downsizing that followed, and money had gotten even tighter than usual. even Adrian could feel it.
4: The first time I went out there, um, early in our collaboration, I was kind of blown away by the whole setup and, you know, for oligosynthesis. It was very impressive. Then they went through some difficult times. So on another trip, they had shrunk. I mean, they got rid of a lot of personnel. They moved to smaller premises. I was thinking, oh my God, are they going to survive (laughs) long enough for this project to be successful?
0: In early 2008, ISIS signed the big deal with Genzyme on CANAMRO, and Henry Termier asked ISIS to throw in the burgeoning CNS program. The research scientists there were wonderful to work with, Frank told me, and Frank and Adrian published in 2008 a paper showing that antisense could modify pre mRNA splicing and kickstart the modified copy of the existing SMN1 gene. Their experiments in SMA mice models were encouraging. The drug development path is littered with failed compounds that once looked promising in mice. But still, their results opened eyes.
4: I think it looked pretty promising because, you know, it was very striking, right? I mean, you, you, we had mice that, if you don't do anything, they drop dead in 10 days. And then we do these treatments, and they're surviving 250 days running around normally. You know? So we're talking not subtle effects. I mean, it was yeah. pretty striking.
0: By 2009... ISIS had officially elevated the Spinal Muscular Atrophy Program to its public pipeline. Along with the growing SOD1 experiments in ALS, ISIS knew it needed help with its clinical aspirations. They hired Kathy Bishop. She grew up in Canada, where she had a great high school teacher in an advanced biology class, who opened a passion for science in Kathy that has never dissipated. She studied genetics in undergrad, eventually earned a PhD in neuroscience at the University of Alberta and then did her postdoc at the Salk Institute in San Diego, studying molecular neurobiology. She published a high-profile paper in science while at Salk that could have led her to an academic career, but she knew she wanted to go into industry, in particular to work on therapies for neurological diseases. Something about academic work, she'd realized, felt too theoretical. For every research grant she'd ever applied for, or won, she'd needed to describe how the proposed work would help patients, and it always seemed a bit fanciful and far off, she wanted to work on disease in a more near-term way. She was hired into a startup gene therapy company called Serogene as its first scientist. For more than eight years, she worked on neurological disorders there—Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS, and Huntington's disease—and took two drugs into the clinic. But after a phase two trial in Parkinson's failed, Serogene was forced to narrow its focus, and that also narrowed the projects Kathy could work on. So she left. Isis hired her at the director level for clinical development. Much of the company was occupied with the Canamro Phase three trial, and Isis needed deep experience in neurology clinical work. Here's Kathy.
5: When I started, the ALS drug was going into the clinic. Um, and, but Frank and Adrian Craner had already done some of the early mouse work on the SMA drug. So my job also was then to start to think ahead to the clinical trials to SMA.
0: It was a disease she'd never even heard about, but she got a crash course in it immediately.
5: And I actually remember really well my first week, it was my first or second week, we had a visit from uh, the SMA Foundation, um, from Karen Chen, their CSO, uh, to come and for us to learn about SMA. Um, So I remember that really distinctly.
0: Kathy brought in a panel of experts to help Isis think about delivery. Isis ran a phase 1 trial in the ALS program in 2010. Officially, an antisense drug had been delivered to the central nervous system. Another first for Isis. That helped ease anxieties around a clinical study in SMA patients because the SOD1 trial showed the delivery into the spine was safe. Still, sick children were an entirely different proposition. Here's Stan.
3: I mean, yeah. It was the riskiest decision I ever made in my life, uh, and we certainly had never did, did, uh, treated a child of any sort at in in any way. Uh, and so, I you know I know bad things can happen. I worried that you know somewhere along in the first couple three patients, one of these patients has uh, some bad event on the on when getting his injection dies, and w- our company's
0: finished. With these expensive trials looming, ISIS would need financial help. But beyond the money, given the risks with these vulnerable children, ISIS also needed knowledge, Stan told me. They needed another corporate partner, a company active in the space. Here's Kathy. Uh,
5: So Frank and I sat down with business development and kind of wrote out a list of all the companies that we thought might be interested and all the people we knew at those companies and then set out to, within that year, uh, find a partner.
0: One of those companies was Biogen. It was one of the original flagship biotech companies, initially founded in 1978 in Geneva, Switzerland, though it moved headquarters to Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1982. It had developed a successful multiple sclerosis franchise over the decades, and by 2010 it had four products on the market, including two for MS and pipeline programs in ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's disease. It had total revenue that year of more than $4.5 billion, and cash on hand of nearly $2 billion. It understood treating the central nervous system, but it was in a period of upheaval. Its success in multiple sclerosis had been difficult to replicate, and its stock had weakened in recent years. Carl Icahn, the activist investor who would soon be after Henry Tremere at Genzyme, had taken to publicly criticizing Biogen CEO Jim Mullen, telling the New York Times in 2009 that Mullen would have to work harder in the face of Biogen's sinking stock, which had fallen by nearly a quarter over a five-year period. Then after Icon secured two seats on Biogen's board in 2009, Mullen left the company in early 2010. Stelios Papadopoulos was on the Biogen board at the time. Here he is discussing that event. In
6: 2010, we had a change in management at uh, Biogen. George Kangas took over um, following Jim Mullen. And when when he showed up, when he became the CEO of Biogen, uh, there was an opportunity, and that's fairly common in this business, uh, to, you know, redefine the management team personnel, priorities, strategy, vision. And uh, you know, at the time, You know, one position that was particularly important was that of head of Mm R&D, which was vacant. Um, Immediately, both George and I thought that the best person for that would have been Doug Williams.
0: Doug Williams was a sharp scientist and had been CEO at a company called Zymo Genetics. But it had been recently bought by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and post-merger, the executive team was not retained. Stelios and George Skangos convinced Doug to join Biogen. He was officially announced as the new head of R&D in early January 2011. Frank Bennett knew Doug Williams, and Biogen was already on the list of companies he and Kathy had put together as potential partners for the SMA program. Frank reached out to talk about spinal muscular atrophy and the work he'd been doing with Adrian Craner. It caught Doug's interest. Here's Stelios again, talking about Doug Williams.
6: Um, somewhere early in 2011, he started bringing up this notion of wanting to do something with with antisense oligonucleotides, uh, largely driven by his own appreciation of the value of the science, as well as uh, his friendship and mutual professional respect with Frank Bennett. Yeah, it really was the Frank Bennett Doug Williams relationship, you know, that drove the vision, defined the vision, and drove the uh, the process.
0: There were other companies expressing interest, but Frank liked what he saw in Biogen. Though he'd gotten along with the researchers at Genzyme before the money got tight and the mood changed, he felt ISIS and Biogen were almost spiritually matched. And that was his pick for the partner, if he could make it happen.
2: I I was a very strong advocate that we had to do this with Biogen. It's just our our two companies were were so aligned in our cultures. Um, And um, the, the people that we're interacting with were people I actually enjoyed talking to. And, and so, you know, that's in part what makes a good collaboration is if you enjoy your, your partner, you know, interacting with your partners, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's important.
0: Perhaps others saw synergy between the companies too. The SMA Foundation, now well-established in the community behind Lauren Eng's tireless efforts and Denicar's financial clout and contacts, often put together scientific meetings on the disease. At one of those, Lauren carefully arranged the dinner seating. Like chess pieces on the board.
2: Well, Lauren plays matchmaker, so they they would have these scientific advisory meetings uh, where really what they would do is talk about you know the latest research and, and um, they invited us uh, to present it at a couple of those uh, meetings and at one of the meetings you know they would do a, a dinner afterwards and Lauren sat me next to Al Sandrock at Biogen and you know I, I knew exactly what Lauren was trying to do. <laughs> You know, so, so you know, it was obvious, but I, I appreciated it. You know, so it was an opportunity for me to have uh, a, a dinner with with Al and uh, Al and I have very similar personalities, and we get along, you know, fabulously. I mean, how long into the dinner before you were talking about SMA? Oh, immediately, and then we, yeah. as I said, I think both Al and I have very similar. Uh, personalities and, and, you know, love for science and, you know, what medicine's doing. And then, um, you know, he just said, you know, we got to do this deal.
0: The dinner helped seal the deal, Frank told me. But it was not exactly a slam dunk. Obviously, Doug Williams wanted it, and he convinced George Skangos. And after that dinner, Al Sandrock wanted it too. But this was before Canamro had been approved, and ISIS's entire drug portfolio, after more than two decades, was a questionable CMB retinitis product that never sold. Many, many people remained skeptical about antisense oligonucleotides. Here's Stelios.
6: So there was broadly a perception in the industry that, yeah, ACEs are interesting, but I'm not sure there will be drugs. And, and that point of view was shared by a number of people on our board.
0: Stelios believed in it. He'd had a relationship with Stan and ISIS nearly since inception and he knew those feelings around ASOs were dated, he said. Eventually, the positive opinions won the day, but the doubt about the program still lingered in the halls of Biogen. The deal was announced the first week of January 2012. It was a single-asset collaboration. Biogen signed to develop and commercialize what by then was named isis SMNRX. It meant that Biogen would use their years of experience with CNS drugs to offer valuable input on trial design and interactions with the FDA, and other regulatory authorities. The deal called for an upfront payment of $29 million to ISIS, and another $45 million in milestone payments linked to achievements and clinical developments. If Biogen licensed the drug outright, it could pay up to $225 million more in fees and milestone payments, and ISIS would get royalties on sales in a double-digit percentage. The $29 million upfront exposed Biogen's cautious nature around the program. The fact that ISIS accepted it showed it still moderate expectations, too. Frank and Adrian had done remarkable things in cell tissue and in mice, but that is eons away from solving anything in humans. One look at the history of SMA and at the way the bodies of these children were betraying them, and anyone could see how difficult the task would be. Just before the announcement of the Biogen collaboration, ISIS entered the clinic with ISIS SMNRX. Moving it into humans contained many anxiety producing elements. The first was the patient population, in particular, the severe type 1 SMA patients who were already in a slow, terminal cycle. If one of those babies died while getting injected, the trial could end right there, halting the forward progress that Frank and Adrian had made. But there were other concerns. Antisense had never been dosed this way. The ALS SOD1 phase 1 trial had used the PUMP method, and this would be bolus injection. It was also the first time antisense as a modality had been put into kids. And there had been very little done, historically, with delivering antisense to the brain. Kathy remembers a trial in France, but nothing else in the literature. There was also the fact that there had never been a drug developed for SMA. A few academic groups had repurposed old drugs in SMA infants, but that had failed, and put some babies into the hospital, so the clinical pathway was fully unclear. And the FDA itself didn't particularly understand the disease, or how desperate the need was. ISIS met with the FDA several times, Kathy told me, in order to help educate the regulatory authority, with people from the SMA Foundation and clinicians coming along to add their expertise. Then there was the complexity of the disease itself. The severity is spread across the four categories, with a vast majority of sufferers falling into types 1, 2, or 3. Diseases always manifest differently in the individual, but not quite like this. And finally, there was the drug ISIS and Biogen were putting forth. ISIS had crafted a 2-methoxyethyl antisense oligonucleotide designed to bind to SMN2 pre-messenger RNA. That binding would then promote the inclusion of exon 7 in the messenger RNA transcript which would, in turn, lead to production of higher levels of working SMN protein. Theoretically, that would arrest the disease's progression. This wasn't exactly aspirin. There were raised eyebrows from regulators and at the hospital level, too. Here's Kathy.
5: And there were a lot of skeptics, I'll say, at the institutional review boards. Um, I spent a lot of time answering questions and providing arguments why this should go forward with those um, people. And I think in that case, too, it's just because they didn't know about SMA um, and the drug was complicated.
0: With so much in front of them and so much on the line, Isis made the decision to not start with the sickest, youngest children, though they were the most in need.
5: In the clinical development of SMA, we didn't start in the infants. So the first trial was in children um between 2 and 14 years of age mm-hmm. so we didn't because we thought it would be so risky to do the trial in these infants and maybe they get hospitalized not because of the drug but because of their disease and we couldn't complete the trial that maybe then we would never be able to develop the drug in that
0: scenario mm-hmm. they launched a phase 1 in medically stable type 2 and type 3 kids and announced it publicly December 19th 2011 it began as a single dose Dose escalation trial with one, three, six, and nine milligram doses across four cohorts, the largest being at Columbia. The drug was delivered by bolus injection into the spinal fluid, and the study gathered safety and tolerability data and the pharmacokinetic profile of the drug.
5: And um, the other thing is, the FDA required us to start at a low dose. So we had to start at a dose that may not have an effect. And then um, because they were very concerned about safety. So they had to start quite low. And then we kind of worked our way, way up, dose escalating in that first trial. And we actually added on a higher dose.
0: Amid Stan's anxiety about dosing children, Kathy helped inject a measure of calm. She had worked CNS clinical trials before at Sergene, and she was in close contact with the clinicians at Columbia. They were comfortable with what was about to happen, and that made her comfortable too. Still, when the trial started and the first dose was administered, her mind raced.
5: Um, That is what I remember. I remember the first patient at Columbia. um, And I remember, um, like, almost staying up all night uh, the day after we dosed that patient, um, wondering if things were going okay and how it was going.
0: There had been so much discussion, so much worry over dosing levels and delivery route and toxicity and the strength of these children, that it was impossible not to be anxious. It had been more than a decade since Adrian Craner attended the NIH meeting on SMA, and more than seven years since Frank and Adrian had first talked of collaborating. Finally, the moment was at hand, and every step would be determined by whatever happened next. The folks at Columbia called Kathy nearly every hour to give updates, and when the night was over, the patient, a two-year-old, was doing fine. The drug had passed the first small test. This phase 1 trial enrolled 28 patients, each of them confirmed to have the deletion of the SMN1 gene, to have clinical signs of SMA, and a life expectancy greater than two years from time of screening. Importantly, the trial also needed to exclude patients. In this case, it meant turning away weaker children who might die during the trial, and those with gastric feeding tubes, those with a current infection that would require an antiviral treatment, those with the history of bacterial meningitis, and other criteria. The study had four arms, across Columbia, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the University of Utah School of Medicine, and UT Southwestern Medical Center, Children's Medical Center, Dallas. Less than a year later, on November 1, 2012, ISIS and Biogen announced a Phase 1B2A trial, again in children, this time aged 2 to 15. The slight increase in age was due to a girl who had been slated to participate in the Phase 1 trial as a 14-year-old, but got sick. She was 15 now, and by changing the parameters, Isis was able to include her in the trial. This new study was multiple dose and dose escalating, meaning patients would receive two or three injections over the course of the study, and there would be cohorts for three, six, and nine milligram doses of Isis SMNRX. No red flags were raised there either. Here is Richard Finkel, who was chief of the Division of Neurology at Nemours Children's Hospital in Orlando, talking about the results.
6: It showed that Uh, These older children could handle the the spinal taps. It seemed to be safe. We were seeing some improvement uh, in their uh, muscle function and their motor activities.
0: All 34 patients in that trial completed dosing, and the drug was well-tolerated over multiple injections. It prompted ISIS, roughly a year later, to add a 12-milligram arm to the trial, and it said it would offer a 12-milligram dose schedule in the open-label extension trials for children who completed the earlier phase one. Meanwhile, in April 2013, ISIS announced a phase 2 study in infants. It was spread across four sites, Stanford University Medical Center, Nemours Children's Hospital in Orlando, once again at Columbia, and also at the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto, Canada. The study tested two doses, 6 milligrams and 12 milligrams. It aimed to enroll 8 babies, but by completion it had enrolled 21, all between the ages of 3 weeks and 7 months all confirmed to have SMN1 gene deletion or mutation, and clinical signs and symptoms consistent with SMA. The trial measured change in neuromuscular electrophysiology, level of motor function, survival, and serious adverse events, as well as the amount of drug found in plasma and other outcomes. These babies were in a delicate position already given their severe infant-onset type of SMA. After two trials in children, The team at Isis and Biogen had gained experience. But the move into the youngest, most ill patients still twisted up their nerves. Here's Stan.
3: And these babies were dying. Yeah. And so, you know, what happens if one of the babies just, um, you know, chooses to die while they're getting an injection? It's terrifying. Um, and, And then most of all, I was terrified we'd do harm to these babies, I mean these poor babies are they're dying they're suffocating they and they're dying by the time they're six months of old how could the thought that we could hurt one of them was was awful yeah and and the only way to figure it out was to take the risk and um, and you know that that first study uh, i'm I'm couldn't call those babies' numbers, so I gave them all names. I mean, we're not allowed to know the names, but I gave them all
0: names. This phase two trial would gather information that ISIS hoped to feed into a registration study to begin in short order, and it also planned a parallel study in children. All along the way, they planned to discuss with the FDA what data they would need to submit in order to win approval. Traditionally, in its history, ISIS's press releases contained information about the news at hand and then a company-sanctioned statement from Stan or another executive. But the releases around the ISIS-SMNRX trials were different. They had statements from Stan, Lynn Parshall, and Frank Bennett, but also from Columbia's Daryl DeVivo and Adrian Craner, and Richard Finkel and the SMA Foundation's Karen Chen, as well as representatives from families of SMA and the Muscular Dystrophy Association and others. Even a comment from the University of Massachusetts Medical School which had supplied a small piece of intellectual property for the drug. It makes the press releases sound less like company statements and more like the voice of a gang, a group of people who had coalesced around a common goal, to develop a drug for these children. After Diane and Matthew Larson put up their Facebook post, telling their family and friends the terrible news about Emma, they tried to move ahead in whatever way they could. But through that social network, someone reached back.
1: It was somebody um, through my husband's family said, hey, uh, there's a doctor here, a scientist who's working on a a treatment for SMA. Why don't you come down? It was Dr. Craner. It was one of the people that worked at the lab. So we're like, oh my God, this is great. So we went down to the lab within, I think, within that week.
0: The Larson's were able to meet with Adrian. He explained the drug, what it was meant to do, and how it was designed to work. He told them what he and Isis were observing in the mice experiments and early studies. He told them that if they were interested in clinical trials, they would want to speak with the folks at Columbia. The Larson's met with Daryl DeVivo. There would be a phase three trial starting soon, he said, and Emma would be a good candidate for the drug. But the study had a lower age limit of two, and Emma was only a year and a half. This meant waiting six excruciating months. And even then, if she was taken into the trial, there was no guarantee she'd receive the drug, since the phase three would be blinded and have a placebo arm. Then, of course, there was no guarantee the drug would work, even if she got it. That was a lot to think about, even without considering all the hospital visits and multiple injections into Emma's spine. The phase three was a glimmer of hope. But the details around it were enough to ring the Larson's out.
1: So we're like, oh my gosh, you know, it, it's, it, to think about, I'm like, I, to do this and go through, have her go through all these injections and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, you know, to me, it's like, what choice do we have? And I said to my husband, putting her through, which be put through a lot, I said, even if she doesn't get the medicine or even if it doesn't work, I said, the only way we're going to The future is going to change as if somebody takes a chance with their child. I mean, it's a big decision. So I said, I don't want anybody to go through what what we're going through, if we could help prevent it. So I told Columbia, I said, we will be here on her second birthday.
0: Make the appointment now, Diane told the people at Columbia. February 6th, 2015, we'll be here. And then Diane and Matthew and Emma began a fight Against the clock, she said. Over those six months, Emma completely lost the ability to crawl. When she was on all fours, she couldn't hold her head up and her legs were like noodles, Diane said. The disease, she told me, doesn't wait around and every day they watch their daughter weaken. Six months of hoping and waiting, she said. The only way the future changes is if someone takes a chance with their child. That was Diane's thinking. The status quo was not working here, not for her or Emma, or anyone else in the SMA community. The Larsons were going to take that chance. Thanks to Stan Crook, now and always. Thanks to Diane, Matthew, and Emma Larson. Thank you to Frank Bennett and Adrian Craner for their memories on developing Isis SMNRX. Thanks to Kathy Bishop for her insight into the clinical trials. Thanks to Stelios Papadopoulos for his incredible memory. Thanks to Richard Finkel for his recollections as a clinician. Sound mix and original theme by Brian Flood. All art created by Aaron DeWalt. Hope Lies in Dreams was written and produced by me, Brady Huggett. Go to the homepage of Nature Biotechnology to find the landing page for this podcast, which includes a list of sources historical photos, and a transcript of this and the previous six chapters. Chapter 8 will be out in a week. Until then.
2: Planning for your next trip?